0: I'm Joseph Rodota, and in episode three of OpPO file, I interviewed Sonia Van Meter, the managing partner of Stanford Campaigns, which is a democratic opposition research firm based in Austin, Texas. Sonia and I talked about how the current national reckoning over racial justice and policing is changing political campaigns, and how OpPO researchers today are taking a second look at the records of politicians from the 1990s. Our conversation covered other very interesting ground. And not just on planet Earth. So, in this bonus episode of Oppophile, here is more from my interview with Sonia Van Meter.
1: You know, one of my favorite things about the industry that I'm in is that it has changed so much in the last 20 years. It used to be that hiring an opposition researcher was something that you barely whispered about. It was dirt digging, it was mudslinging, and that you were about to go negative in a really offensive, you know, morally reprehensible way. And now it is quite simply doing your homework before you launch. Part of the
0: goal of the show is I want to meet new opposition researchers. Um, I've been out of the partisan opposition research world for a while, and you're in it. And so I'm excited to um, uh, hear your story about how you got into this field.
1: Well, um, it, it's a very simple story, actually. Uh, I, I married into it. When I was done with graduate school, I realized it didn't take me long to figure out that I had far more of a bent toward activism than I did academics. I really enjoyed my program on the sociology PhD candidates but ultimately, I didn't like the idea that I would spend the rest of my life writing papers that only other people in my field were going to read. You know, sociology was my undergrad degree. I really enjoyed everything that I learned about in, in, that, in that field, but I wanted to see it applied in the real world. And so right about the time I was getting ready to leave Texas to go out to San Francisco and be a little bit closer to some family, I met my husband. It was... Uh, not at all what I expected, but he was a political consultant. Uh, you know, He ran the opposition research shop, Stanford Campaigns, he was the founder, in fact, and uh, I was looking for a new job anyway, and as insane as it sounded, I didn't have a lot of interest in marrying a man, becoming the stepmother to his children, and coming to work for him. That seemed like a, a really great way to doom your marriage right at the outset. But it turned out that we worked together very well. He wanted someone to come and run his company while he was, you know, the, the man behind the curtain um, making all the magic happen. And it worked out really, really well. And over the years, I just sort of learned the industry because he had so many wonderful contacts. And, you know, it, it didn't take me long to develop my own contacts and, and my own uh, resources. And then I guess it was back in uh, 2014, he decided that he needed to do something else. And uh, I said, that's great. Why don't you go on and do your next thing? And I will hang back and take care of your company. And it has been like that ever since.
0: And as I was preparing for this episode, uh, which is about Willie Horton in 1988 and race and opposition research today, I saw your tweet about how some of the tough on crime records and votes, statements, et cetera, from candidates in the 1990s about race relations or policing are now really interesting to opposition researchers of both parties. So tell me, uh, what do you see is going on uh, in this moment of nationwide reckoning with questions relating racial equality, social justice, and policing? How does that trickle down to uh, the desk of an opposition researcher?
1: Well, the materials that we look up are very much the same as they've always been. You know, records that we can get from police departments um, and other you know publicly available sources, voting records, for example. These are the kind of things that we look at to make points about the candidates and why they're working for or against. So, not much has changed in terms of the process. What well, has changed rather radically especially in the last few months with Black Lives Matter bringing so much attention to the issues of police brutality, is uh, the light in which previous votes and previous statements are now held. One of the things the Democrats had to fight very hard for was to be taken seriously as law and order candidates. And so anytime there was an opportunity to vote responsibly, they thought in a way that indicated, I am here for law and order, they would take advantage of that. The 1994 crime bill is an excellent example of of that kind of voting. You know, that bill was sponsored by Joe Biden and signed by Bill Clinton, two of the most prominent Democrats in (laughs) in the last 20 years. And now all of a sudden, you know, those kind of votes and statements pertaining to those kind of votes are being viewed in a wildly different way, because the issue of police brutality is finally becoming a national issue. What this means in terms of Republican-Democrat relationships right now, in terms of advantage, is yet to be seen. But I think that uh, what we have seen for sure is Democrats having to defend law and order records that they used to once count as a point of pride. And that's because, you know,
0: the social winds are blowing in a very different direction right now. So for Democrats, it's a a question of defensive research. Opposition researchers not only brought in to evaluate and develop argument and material about the opponent, but also uh, often they're given the responsibility of self-research or understanding the candidate's record or working with the candidate's longtime political aides and staff to get that record sort of organized. So defensively, that means that Democrats who have records that extend into the 90s, let's say, have to go back and look at everything and document and kind of be able to answer and describe those if challenged is what you're saying.
1: Exactly. But you don't have to go too terribly far back into the future. Look at the Kamala Harris presidential campaign. She had a hard time shaking off the label of cop. Because she had been, you know, a district attorney and the attorney general. And she had a reputation, founded uh, or otherwise, for being a law and order candidate when that was not what the Democratic base wanted right this moment. And obviously, there are other factors that play into that. Her uh, race and her gender were also, I believe, problematic for her in this race. But yeah, I mean, that, that was only this year. You know, you don't have to go back all that far to see people having to suddenly defend against her reputation for being a long-order
0: candidate. So if you were on the opposition research team for Biden at this moment, like what would you be telling your junior researchers to go find and fact check and organize about uh, Trump on issues of policing and race
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> the interesting thing about Don is that, you know, the attacks that are leveled at him don't usually stick. The Central Park Five, for example, and his trash talking, his insanely racist trash talking of them, you know, that's well documented. And it's been you know published and republished all over the Internet. And it just doesn't seem to matter because Trump's support comes from a different place. And while I do absolutely think that race and ethnic relations between communities of color and the legal system at large uh, are going to be serious players uh, in this election, I mean, so much of that information is already out there. It's just a question of collecting it and making sure that you know people are exposed to it again. But with that in mind, I think the two biggest things that Donald knew story about this cycle is the COVID response, is response to, to the pandemic, and the economy that is crumbling beneath the seas. You know, the Black Lives Matter and the policing problem is, is an absolute mission-critical uh, issue for the Democratic base. And we're starting to see it move voters closer to the center as well, and that is extraordinary. And I, I hope the momentum holds uh, for a million reasons not the least of which being that, you know, could potentially swing the election away from, from Donald and, and put a new president in the White House. But, you know, the thing that is sort of universal is this pandemic. You know, no one can escape it. And that is affecting communities of color at a higher rate uh, and a more devastating rate than um, white communities. And, you know, a crumbling economy, you know, affects absolutely everyone. There's, there's no escaping that. So, I mean, in this case, yeah, it's just a question of, of collecting The myriad times that Trump has said something racist into a live mic, particularly about famous cases, again, the Central Park 5 comes to mind, and then making sure that uh, Joe Biden deploys that information responsibly.
0: So I I think you might be the only opposition researcher I've ever met who also wants to go to Mars.
1: (laughs) It is a a strange and very special distinction, isn't it? (laughs)
0: So tell me about uh, Sonia and space travel.
1: Sonia and space travel. I guess back in 2012 or 2013 I was just, you know, messing around online and I saw a story about a Dutch clean energy entrepreneur who wanted to establish the first colony on Mars. And unlike, you know, NASA and ESA and other space-faring organizations, they didn't require a ton of medical or technical training from their applicants. They just wanted to know if you were the kind of person who could handle spending the rest of your life in very, very confined quarters under a tense environment. As you might imagine, being a professional political consultant, particularly in the Trump era, I think that's a quality that certainly applies to me. And so I was very, very happy to apply, mostly just because I wanted to be a part of whatever very small zeitgeist uh, there would be surrounding the effort. And I think it just sort of happened that I ended up being selected one of 100 candidates uh, for potential colonization worldwide because of my political training. You know, I've worked with so many media consultants over the years who have, you know, just by accident, accidentally trained me on how to look good on camera. And since this entire effort was going to be funded by a reality style TV show, they thought that was a quality worth having. Mm As far as I know, the organization is still out there trying to raise money, trying to make this happen. But uh, for the time being, I'm going to behave as though my life will end on this planet.
0: So you're not going there to look for any, any files. Nobody's running on Mars for anything, right?
1: As far as I know, not yet, but rest assured, I'll be the first person there ready to turn that red planet blue.
0: Apollo File is a production of Last 5% Media. Our production manager is Caitlin Bruce. Our sound engineer is Jeremy Damas. Our researchers are Adam Melian and Lisa Wang. Andrew Greenwood is our designer, and our website is by Edgar Gera. We'd like to thank Workhouse Media, Studio To Be, Chris George, Gary Maloney, Cassandra Pye, District Productive, R Street Recording, and our listeners and guests. For more information on this podcast, check out our website at www.opofile.com or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Opofile. If you enjoyed this episode of Opofile, please subscribe and leave a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now, and share Opofile with your friends. Thanks for listening, and please join us on the next episode of Opofile.